but it is good to be back. I was telling someone yesterday about how wonderful this congregation is, and I actually started to get choked up. <laughs> I had to stop. I said, they're just wonderful. It's going to make me cry to talk about... I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's good to be back with you all. Um, just a quick announcement or two. Next Sunday, we are going to do our first Church in the Park that we've done for a while because we didn't get to do it last year. And um, we've done this several times, and it's very special. So if you head down Main Street or Church Street, either of these streets that run parallel on either side of the church, and you just go down a few blocks and you come to Fifth Street, there's a beautiful playground there in a fenced-in park, and there's a really nice pavilion. And um, we like to have church there at least once a summer because something really neat happens. The neighbors all around the park, a lot of them will come out and sit and watch, and that's their way of going to church that day. They might not feel comfortable coming in here, but they will sit and go to church in the park, and I've, I've been told that they miss that. So it's, it's also a way for us to make a statement to the community and say, we're here for you. We're not, we're not a cl secret club with the doors shut and, and <laughs> the windows covered up. We're here for you. So we're going to do that next Sunday. The church will grill some meat, and if you'd like to bring a, di a side dish, um, you can do that. And I'm not sure what we're going to do for seating yet. There is a pavilion with a lot of picnic tables, but um, probably I would say bring a folding camping chair as well. Um, and then we'll just, we'll figure that out as we go. <laughs> uh, um, let's see, on the 28th is Wellsburg Community Days, and that's our big annual clothing giveaway. So be saving your quality clothing and shoes, and then the week leading up to that on the 28th, we'll be collecting them. But actually, you can bring them anytime. Just, you can bring them in and you can probably put them in this utility room or in that coat room out there because I, I think we can start collecting them now. So uh, those two things. All right. So, um, you know, it was interesting when I heard what Ryan did last Sunday because I had asked him if he would share his testimony. He has a really interesting story. And by the way, I got to say thank you guys. Thank you, worship team. I, it, I just thought they did great. So thank you guys. Um, anyway, I had asked Ryan to share his testimony while Dave and I were away last Sunday. And then I heard that he felt led the last minute in a different direction. And of all things, he talked about the Holy Spirit. Well, I had already been thinking, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I had been feeling that we need to go through the book of Acts. And so when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's interesting. That's a really good lead-in to the book of Acts. So what I would like to do is just kind of take a survey through the book of Acts. And I know for some of you, this book is, is familiar, and for others of you, it might be completely unfamiliar. So let's just kind of pretend we're getting in a canoe, because I've got canoeing on my mind, and we're just meandering down this river and kind of taking a survey of the land, the layout of the land, and that's what we're going to do with the book of Acts. We're just going to work our way through it, and here's the purpose. It's twofold. It's first of all, we want to find out when the church was born 2,000 years ago, the early church, what did it look like, and how far have we deviated from that? 
Like how much of what we do have we actually invented? <laughs> how many man-made traditions that are not necessarily God's idea do we cling to and call that good church? So that's one thing. We're going to take a fresh look at what was the original church like? Like what did God have in mind? And let's see how far we've come and where we need to get back to, right? And then the other purpose is the Holy Spirit's role in that. How was the Holy Spirit actively involved in and through the early church, which was actually not a church, as we will see, uh, not a building, as we will see. It was people. So let's get started. And I'm, today, I'm just going to simply just start reading in Acts chapter 1, and we'll see how far we get. I'm not going to go too long. And um, throughout this study, I really want to hear from some of you. I want to hear your stories of the Holy Spirit's involvement in your life. When he came upon you in a powerful way for the first time, I want to hear from you. So I'm going to let you know right now, I'm expecting it. Let me know, those of you who would like to share at some point, I want to hear your testimony of when you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about what that means. Okay? So be ready for that. It's not going to be just me <laughs> this whole time. All right, Acts chapter 1. I'm reading from the New King James translation. Acts chapter 1 starting with verse 1. Now, let's talk about the writer before I start reading. This is written by Luke the physician, okay? He's, he was a physician. He's a smart guy. And keeping good records as a physician is very important to him. So the same man, Luke the physician, who wrote the book of Acts, was the same Luke who wrote the book of Luke, which was his eyewitness account of Jesus' life, particularly Jesus' three years of ministry, ages 30 to 33. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make up the Gospels. Each of them gave their own eyewitness account of what they saw, and, and uh, they corroborate very beautifully. And so now Luke has now taken upon, upon himself to write a second book, and this is about what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and the church was born. That is what the book of Acts is about. And so he's writing, the recipient of this letter is someone named uh, Theophilus. We don't really know much about him. Uh, it's suggested that he may have been um, Luke's former master because a lot of physicians in this time were, also, were often slaves. That's just a suggestion, but it doesn't matter. So that's who it's written to, but it's really written to us, okay? So let's start reading Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account, he's talking about his book of Luke, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I have this word began circled. It's significant because he's saying, look, I've already written to you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach, but he's indicating that Jesus isn't finished doing things and teaching things. And guess, who guess whom he does them through? Guess whom he teaches things through? By his Holy Spirit through you and me. So the things that Jesus began to do and teach were written about in the Gospels, but that's not where it ended. Okay, 
So let's go on, verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. You could also call them the disciples. But there, there, we'll see there, there were much more than the 12 as the church began to grow. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. This is the voice clearly of a physician talking, can you tell? Many infallible proofs. Luke is very carefully writing a report of what he personally, personally witnessed. And he's being careful to point out that Jesus presented himself bodily resurrected physically alive um, by, to many people by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. So Jesus was on the earth resurrected for 40 days after his death before he ascended into heaven. And what was he doing? What was he talking about? He was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, one of my favorite subjects. Just hold on to that phrase because you're going to see it a lot in this book of Acts, the kingdom of God. And so for those 40 days, that's what Jesus talked about, the kingdom of God. Verse 4 says, and being assembled together with them. Now this is, he's talking about uh, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he was ascended into heaven, before he ascended he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And those words, promise and Father, are capitalized. To wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, this is John the Baptist he's talking about, the forerunner, the announcer of the coming of Jesus the Messiah, he baptized with water, as some of you were a couple Sundays ago. It's very beautiful. But you shall be baptized. John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Oh, so he's letting them know. There's something else. There's, there's more. That's a key word for this study. There's more. There is so much more. So there's so much more than this baptism of repentance, this decision that I am going to identify by water baptism with Jesus' death and resurrection as I come up out of the water, signifying that I have been given a new identity through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. I can begin a new life with a brand new identity. I am loved by God. I am washed clean. It, it, it is as though the original me who was driven and governed by my fallen nature has been buried, and I have arisen to new life. That's water baptism and what it signifies. It's very powerful, and we all got to see seven of you do that a couple weeks ago. But Jesus is letting them know, yeah, that happened to you. You made that decision, but I'm telling you, very soon you are going to experience another baptism, and it's called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't leave Jerusalem until this happens to you. And there's a reason. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, 
will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember, their kingdom, their nation, Israel, is being very oppressed and ruled by the Romans. And I've talked about this times, several times probably. It's not one of their brightest moments. Like they're, they're still not getting why Jesus came. They're still thinking about, like they're still assuming that Jesus came for their nation, right? And uh, Jesus, his answer, his answer, he says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. I don't fully understand that answer, but I kind of wonder, like if, I, I mean, I can relate to really wanting to know the times and seasons and wanting God to quickly change the times and seasons, right? <laughs> Sometimes I feel like a good God. This would be a really good time. To, let's, let's enter a new season now, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> like, it's time to change the times, <laughs> right? And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not for you to know. I mean, yes, I believe in prophecy. I believe there's a place for that. I believe that God can clue people in sometimes on what he's going to do. But in this instance, Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not for you to know. And he immediately changes the subject because that's not why he had come. He didn't come just for the nation of Israel. So he changes the subject in verse 8. He says, but you, but you, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. How many of you would like to receive power for living? How many of you sometimes, I'm raising my hand, feel powerless to live this life? Like I could use some more power. Sometimes I feel real powerless against the smallest things that really shouldn't take me down. Yeah. Jesus promises that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he tells us the result of that. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. That was significant because Samaria was the enemy. He's telling him, you're going to go there to those people you don't agree with. Those people that you've been demonizing, yeah, yeah, you're, I'm sending you to them. And you're going to be witnesses to me in these places and to the ends of the earth. In other words, what he's saying is this gospel that I'm sending you out to preach, this, this bearing witness of me, you are, this is universal in scope. That's why it can't be all about your nation. This is universal in scope. This is an international message. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to bear witness of me. So he's kind of giving, him, giving them the heads up as he's leaving. Like, okay, this is what's coming next because I'm out of here. See, Christianity is unique because if you look at other gods and other religions, you have this one God and whether he is very personable or knowable or relatable or compassionate or merciful, you'd have, to, you'd have to find out, and you probably don't want to find out. But he's over there. He's out there. He's this Christian God. He's, he's a far-off deity often in these religions, but the Christian God is so unique because 
He's the God who is here. That's the meaning of Emmanuel. He's the, he's the God who is with us. So God, in wanting to relate to us and have us relate to him, he came to walk this earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So the, we have the Trinity, if you're not familiar. There's the, and the Christian, the Christian God is necessarily a community. It's the original community. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is and has always been such a perfect, harmonious community that if you, you read in Genesis, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And, and, you know, I've said before that it's kind of the idea of parents who are enjoying their unity and they want to bring others into it. So let's have kids and bring others into this, into this community. And that's the idea. Um, and so God came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to show us who he is. That's why Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus lived as a human being completely dependent on his Father. Even though he was still God, he laid aside his divine privileges and powers to live as one of us and experience all the things we experience. And the same power that he needed to live as a human is the same power he is now in this passage offering his disciples. In other words, he's saying, look, all those things you saw me do for the last three years of my ministry, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be empowered now. So wait, wait, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't try to do this on your own. <laughs> See, that's the problem. <laughs> Too many Christians and too much of the church have left Jerusalem to go out and try to be witnesses to Jesus Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've made a disaster of it. I've been guilty. Huh, more times than I want to think about of opening my big fat mouth without waiting and yielding and listening to the Holy Spirit's Spirit's guidance. How would you like for me to say this? When would you like for me to say this? Would you even like for me to say this at all? Oh, if we could learn to do that. Jesus is saying, wait until you are filled with the Holy Spirit, so, because he's going to empower you to properly and very appropriately carry this message. Be my witness of what you have, what you have been born witness to. So the, what I was saying is the Christian God is unique in that when the, the, uh, the physical manifestation of God, who was and is Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, that, can you imagine, I mean, that, that can you imagine if there was no Holy Spirit? It would, it would be another religion where we've got this deity somewhere out there, far off, and maybe if we try really hard, we can make him happy so he's not mad at me. <laughs> we can please him. I mean, that's religion. This is so entirely unique. Jesus ascends into heaven, but he, there's another place where he says, I'm going to my Father, but I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. 
I am sending the Holy Spirit, and he's called the Helper, and Jesus said it with a capital H. He's going to walk alongside you, and there's something more coming where he's actually going to empower you. I'll illustrate it this way. I've, I've seen it. Uh, I need a tissue, a, a, a tissue, a Kleenex. Um, thank you. Someone illustrated it like this. This is my, not my original idea, but maybe you've seen this before. It's like, you know, a person realizes, you know, I'm foolish to think that as smart as I am and as wise as I am and as good as I am, I'm foolish to think that I can be the master of my own destiny. I guess I really do need God after all because I got stuff way deep inside that I have no control over fixing and healing for example, right? So that person decides, I'm going to invite God into my life. And as symbolized through water baptism, that person decides, Jesus, come into my life. I, I confess that I need you to be my savior and my master. So that person invites God into their life and demonstrates that publicly through water baptism. And what happens is the Holy Spirit the, second, the third person of the Trinity, the invisible person of the Trinity who is very much a person, absolutely as much a person as God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life as a seed that is sown into that person's heart. It's a conception. It's a conception. And so what happens then is now that person has become a Christian through rebirth, spiritual rebirth. They've been born again. Water baptism shows that, you know, my, my, I've, I've come alive spiritually. I've some, and I talked about that a couple weeks ago. And if you water that seed with the word of God and spending time in God's presence and in prayer, if you water that seed it will start to grow and bear fruit. You show me a Christian who doesn't look any different than anyone else, yeah, they're probably not watering that seed. It's a barren tree. Nothing much to show. Those are the people you find out, well, they're a Christian, really? I'd have never known that. Maybe I've acted that way before. But God wants us to bear fruit, so we water that seed, and it grows, and it bears fruit. But Jesus is saying now to his disciples who have been baptized with this baptism by John, the Holy Spirit, they've had this experience. The seed is there. The seed of God's Spirit, his presence, is there in their lives. They've been born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus. And Jesus is saying there's something more coming you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk a lot about this as we go through this book. And in that, it's that same Holy Spirit, but now it looks something more like this. It's a clothing, a covering, and it's power. It is a mantle of power, a presence of power that suddenly now allows you to, to walk and talk and be and live a whole different way, and you find yourself blown away sometimes by the power that is upon you, and you know it's only God. It can't be of yourself. 
It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, oh, there they are. At least I have them up here this time. So let's read on. Uh, Verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine watching that? You've grown up with this kid, this carpenter's kid from Nazareth. You've watched him grow up, and then he became filled with the Holy Spirit, and for three years you watched him raise the dead and heal the sick and perform all these amazing miracles, and now he's taken up into heaven. He's gone. Thankfully, he had promised them he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. It says, verse 10, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, that would be the jaw drop, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, we can assume these were angels, who also said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? There's a lot in that question. Like, why are you acting and thinking that this is it? Like, your religion is all over now. Like, it's, it's the end. Jesus is gone. No more miracles. I don't know what's in that question, but you wonder what they were thinking, even though Jesus had just told them what's coming. But remember, these guys are kind of thick. He had told them a lot of stuff before that they didn't get. <laughs> like, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again. That went over their head. So maybe this gazing was really like, I don't know, devastation with their jaw on the ground. So he says, why are you standing there looking, gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, verse 11, who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he is going to come back to this earth someday, literally and bodily. He's going to come back. His feet are going to touch down again. And that's a promise. Yeah, you can read about that in the book of Revelation. So, verse 12 says, then they returned to Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus' directive. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. This is a different Judas, not Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and By this time, he's gone. He's ended his life because he was devastated by his own sin. So verse 14 says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Supplication is just a word that means it's a special kind of prayer that just means you're, you're you're, you're pleading with God. You're asking God. You're begging God and pleading with him. Oh, God, please. That's supplication. There's different kinds of prayers. I want to stop here with this phrase. They all continued with one accord. Okay, the word continue indicates that they are gathering in Jerusalem and they are now making it a daily practice 
because they don't know when this thing is going to happen that Jesus talked about. But they, they, and it's interesting to me, I don't see where Jesus told them to actually pray. He just said, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for this thing that's coming. What do they do? They don't go to Jerusalem and hang out and play bingo and ping pong and have a party. They, they, they pray. I guess I figure that's probably what you ought to do when Jesus says, hey, the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to baptize you with power. Wait for it. It's probably a good idea when God promises you something like that, that you don't just sit and wait, but that you actively wait in prayer. Like, they're doing their part. This is amazing. Jesus did not say to them, now, look, I want you to go there and start praying and begging for this. He didn't need to tell them. They just knew, okay, here are the promises of God, but we got to do our part. We're not just going to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for this thing to happen. We're going to gather together and we are going to continue every day and pray until this thing happens. I think we can learn something here. See, we're, we're watching the early church, and what we are doing in this study is we're watching and hopefully learning to see, okay, where have we gotten off? What, where do we need to go back to? It says, these all continued with one accord, and I want to look at that. In the original text, the Greek, it literally means with one purpose or mind. Let me ask you a question. It says, they all continued with one accord, with one purpose, with one thing in mind. They were all of the same mind. They had the same idea, the same agenda. Why do you go to church? I want you to just think about this. If it was said of Wellsburg Community Church, those people continue in prayer every day or every week. They gather with one purpose. If it was said of us and someone were to ask, well, what's the purpose? What would you say? I invite you to think about that this week for as long as you need to. Because I've asked that question before. And you get every kind of answer. Yeah, you can write it down. Why do I go to church? It's good to think about. There are all manner of answers. And I'm telling you, I myself, I've been in church all my life, and that, that answer for me has changed. Oh, man, thank God. Thank you, Lord, it has changed. You all are in huge trouble if that answer hasn't changed. Oh, I used to go to bad church for some stupid reasons. Oh, I love the songs there. I love the music there. And those things are good, and, and I love our music. I'm so proud of our music. Are you proud of our music? It's groovy. I love it. I just think we're so cool, but... I'm just saying, like, it's easy to make that the thing that keeps me coming back. That's just one example. Why do we go to church? Oh, it's cool. I love the style. It's entertaining. Or how about this one? I get fed there. Ooh, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> Someone asked me recently, well, 
you're a pastor and you preach most Sundays, when do you get fed? Like, who do you listen to? And I said, it should be the same answer for you. And I hope your answer is not that you get fed on Sunday. You want to know how I get fed? Every single day, man. Every single day. And it should be the same for you. If you are dependent on me or anybody up here or on YouTube or in the car on the CD or whatever to feed you spiritually, I believe God is gently possibly saying to you, dearie, let's come out of the high chair, (laughs) stop being spoon-fed, and let's start learning to self-feed, self-feed. Like God can speak to you. You don't need me or a preacher to completely feed you spiritually. That's dangerous even. That's dangerous. That's like there's no growth. That's like that's baby food, you know? God wants you to be a self-feeder where every day you say, okay, God, here I am. Feed me. This is my, my spiritual growth. My sp- this is your spirit food. And is, it is absolutely as vital to your spiritual growth as your natural food is to your physical growth. So yes, there's a place for teaching in the church, and we will see that in the book of Acts. Yes. Church is for corporate worship with music and song. Absolutely, it's biblical. Church is for teaching the word of God by people that God has, has called and equipped to teach. Yes, absolutely. But those are just teeny tiny parts of it. They can't, any of them, be your purpose for coming to church. So then you might ask, okay, well then what's the, what's the right answer, Faith? What's the reason? You see, the church is not just an organization that meets in a building. The church is an organism. It's a living organism. It's a body. It's called in Scripture the body of Christ. Christ is our head. We are the many-membered parts of his body. And when we come together in worship, something dynamic and amazing happens and can happen. And there is so much more that God wants to happen. But we've got to come together. You notice they were together. They could have gone back to Jerusalem and all gone to their different little rooms in their their inns and prayed alone, and they would have never, I believe, ever experienced what was about to happen next. You can't live the Christian life alone in solitude. It is not. The Christian life is meant to be lived and expressed through community. We are a body We are a family. And so the purpose, my purpose at this point in my life, insofar as I understand these words, is that when I walk in here on Sunday, I am not anymore, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, walking in. I'm learning this. I'm coming to this place. I am not walking in thinking, oh, I hope it's going to be good today. I wonder what she's going to be talking about today. Wonder who's playing and singing today. I wonder what bagels they have today. (laughs) It's like none of that. 
I come in here, it's like, thank you, God, that we're all in the same boat, that I can be surrounded with these people who are absolutely dependent on you, just as I am, and we can be together and remind each other that we need God. And we can't do this alone. We cannot do it without each other. And we absolutely can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And when we gather, just gathering, the Holy Spirit's presence is manifest. You feel it? It's manifest. And we start to realize, wow, I, I, I think I can do this. I, I think I can keep walking. Matter of fact, I think I might eventually start flying. If this Holy Spirit thing is real, if he's that powerful, I need that. And then we start to listen to each other and hear each other's testimonies and witness and proclaiming the goodness of God and what he's done in my life. It's like, he did that for you? Wow, I want that. Will you pray for me? Yeah, I'll pray for you. See, I, I long for that day. Well, we're just not playing church. We come here, you never know what's going to happen, right? I want to see that. Like, I wonder what's going to happen today. <laughs> I wonder who's going to say what and do what. I wonder what miracles we're going to see this time. Wouldn't that be great? That would be the normal Christianity. It's not supposed to be something unusual and spectacular. It is supposed to be the normal Church, dynamic, alive, explosive, and life-changing, transforming power. That is what the church is supposed to be. Not some funeral dirge. Not some club. But God is going to get us there. I'm confident of that. We are going there, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. I'm going to bring us to the close, and then next Sunday we will see what happens. So they, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. See, it, it typically would not have been reported that there were women there because women were very less than in this time and culture. But Luke, the physician, is a meticulous reporter, and he's letting us know, hey, the women were there. They were a part of this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This was Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And, and it, it goes on. We can... Um, yeah, we'll just finish this and I'll be done. Uh, he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And he, This man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Thank you for that, Luke. Very good to know. Verse 19, it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. This is important to know. I mean, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies very specific that came to pass, and this is just one of them. It came to pass hundreds of years later. This is one of them. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. This is talking about 
Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Therefore, one of these men who have a... And, and it's interesting to me, this is the first deciding factor. This is, this is what they just... They're, they're going to pull together uh, a couple men that they think qualify to take Judas's place. And this is what they use as a deciding factor. Therefore, one of these men who have accom accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, went in and out among us. In other words, all right, they picked the guys who had been there, who had accompanied us all the time. They're, they're just starting with, they picked two guys who simply showed up. They had been faithful all the time of Jesus' ministry, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And I have that phrase underlined, of his resurrection, because what is the whole idea? What are we bearing witness to? His death and resurrection. That's the message. That is the only life-changing message. It is the only thing that brings true and lasting hope for every single human being. Jesus died to atone for your sin, and he rose from the dead so that you too can and will live forever, forever, bodily, physically glorified, perfected. That's our hope. What a hope it is. You can improve on that. So I'll just shorten this up and, and then uh, I'll close. They proposed to Joseph and Matthias. So they pick two that they believe qualify, but then they let the Lord pick which one out of those two. They prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You might say, cast lots? That's like the lottery? What, what, what's that about? What's that doing in here? Well, a note here simply says, casting lots was a provision of the law from Leviticus 16. It may be significant that following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is going to happen next, there's no more mention of the practice. Notice also that on this occasion, the disciples first selected the two men they judged most worthy to fill the vacancy. The final decision was left to the Lord as they prayed. Next week, we'll see what happens as they are gathered in one accord, one purpose, one mind, praying for this great thing, this promise that Jesus has told them is coming. Would you pray with me? And if you will, I would invite you to present your hands like this as if to say, Father God, we want this. Jesus, we know this promise is for us. It's not just for those, those 120 that were gathered in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Father God, we know this is for us here in Wellsburg. This is for this body of believers. This is for us every bit as it was for them. So we ask you, Father God, to set us on a brand new course. Set our path straight for this church and this body of believers. Let this be our heart's cry, our fervent desire, our daily passion, that we would want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and power to become witnesses 
of your resurrection. Would you begin to work mightily in this place and make us a book of Acts church? We want to be who you want us to be, God. Not what we want to be, not our, not our own agenda. We want to be obedient to you as a church, and we don't want to miss out on anything, anything you would have for us. So we're asking for the Holy Spirit to fall in this place and baptize every single believer here. I'm asking for that to happen this year in Jesus' mighty name. Do you agree with me? Everybody agrees? Everybody that would agree, let's say amen and amen. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you, Lord. Be prepared with those stories of your testimonies because I'm going to be um, inviting you to share them. Amen. Okay, we will see you back next week for Church in the Park. It will be at the same time, 1030. Um, I guess we'll do our coffee, our coffee and juice and everything. Do we usually do that at 930 in the park? I don't have Mary Jo here, my, my right-hand lady. We're, we usually do that. We'll say 930 coffee and juice and then same time for everything. That's what we, okay, you're dismissed.